Hello and welcome to Storytime, a brand new podcast going deep under the surface of music from films. I'm one of your hosts, Warren Ringham, and let me introduce you to my partner in crime, composer Jason Frederick. Say hi, Jason. Hello to everyone. So we're recording this in early March 2020. Uh, Originally, we were planning to launch this podcast this summer, kicking off by looking at the scores from James Bond films and potentially longer term, we might go on to other films as well. But the James Bond films are something very close to both our hearts. However, with the new song recently dropping for No Time To Die, Billie Eilish's song, and the intense interest in it, we decided we'd get together a bit earlier to have a look at that. So we'll be back in the summer as planned with more podcasts and we'll probably do a few smaller ones and probably do one to introduce us a bit more and look at composing in general before then as well if we get a chance. But if you enjoy what you're hearing on this podcast, please subscribe. Also come and like our Facebook page, Scorey Time. Uh, So when we come back, you'll get all the latest episodes. Before we get cracking on No Time to Die, let's just do a really brief intro into myself and Jason. Jason, why don't you start? Okay, uh, my name is Jason Frederick. I'm a film and television composer. Uh, I'm initially from Canada, and uh, after a decade of uh, living and working in Los Angeles, I now reside in the UK. Not that close to you, but uh, close enough that uh, technology has brought us together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my name is Warren Ringham. I'm a professional trumpet player. I graduated from the Royal College of Music. I had a very brief career um, in working in the orchestral world in London um, before going more freelance. And now I run a James Bond tribute band called Cue the Music Show, which is a touring theatre show. And probably a lot of people listening will have heard of it anyway, I guess, because you probably heard me on other podcasts. Um, but now I am starting to do this podcast with Jason. And Jason, Jason, briefly, how we met. I came across you a few years ago with another project that you were working on, The Mods and Coppers, which is a, a, a kind of, a, I guess in some ways, a bit similar to Cue the Music in that it was sort of performing a, a tribute to the music from films, wasn't it? But but more wider ranging than just James Bond. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. It was uh, after a few years, I thought uh, it would be nice to do something that sort of reflected some of the influences I had that made me want to get into uh, this kind of music in the first place. So I took my favourites from, you know, Get Carter to Bullet to Dirty Harry and just did kind of, uh, yeah, horn-based rhythm section uh, rearrangements that were trying to uh, stay true to the spirit of the originals and not a million miles away in vibe from what you're doing, although the material was different, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really true, actually. And, and I, I came across it and I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. I mean, you're a man after my heart for the detail and, and the love of that music as well. And um, and we sort of hooked up. And, and then not only that, um, you also started doing a scorey time yourself on YouTube. Uh, so if anybody's listening, go and check out both Mods and Coppers and scorey time for a few episodes that you did before we had the idea to do something together which um i'm really really honored to to be able to come and join you on your nick your title scorey time for this and um really excited to to do it so and of course uh keep your eye out for uh, appearances of cue the music the world's finest James Bond tribute band in your area. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and of course, we'll be doing No Time to Die, the very song that we're about to talk about. We will be performing it live. So hopefully uh, you'll like <laughs> you'll like our version. I'm sure it'll be great. I can't wait to hear it. 
All right then, so let's get under the hood then. Let's talk about this, break this song down. And and I think it's important to note that whilst we are going to give our opinions and feelings on the song, I think the idea of this these podcasts that we talked about was to really go a bit more analytical and explain to people, particularly non-musicians, what's happening, how these things are composed, the techniques that are going in. And there are lots of opinion podcasts and opinions about this song out there, and we will give ours, but I think we're going to sort of be more looking at the analytical stuff. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. But before, with saying all that, I think we should start by giving our opinion on this song. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of the song when you first heard it and how are you feeling about it? Now it's been a good couple of weeks it's been out. It's been number one. Smash it. It's absolutely done everything that, that I guess the aim was. What are your feelings about it? Well... You and I talked about this a couple, well, maybe a week or so ago, and uh, I've been living with it for a while, and I think that I'm, I personally, I'm not judging it as a song, but my personal reaction, I'm really having a hard time enjoying it myself. I've tried, and I think that it's got lots of good things about it, and she's great, but at the moment, I am not enjoying it as much as I would have liked to. That's my personal opinion. So is that as a, as a song or a Bond song or both? Well, I think it's hard to not look at it as a Bond song. So I try not to be incredibly judgmental. But yeah, as something that is the latest in the legacy of what are, in my opinion, you know, some of just the greatest songs ever put to anything cinematic. Mm. I'd like to say otherwise, and it actually kind of goes against my character to say something that sounds like it's negative, so I'm not saying that it's a bad song, but I'm saying I personally have not had uh, an easy time kind of enjoying it. I've tried really hard, and I've tried to kind of look at it, you know, pull it apart and look at it and put it back together, but uh, that's my, my personal thing is that it's not uh, it's striking me like an incredible advance evolution in the series of uh, songs thus far. But that's just my opinion. Well, I th- I th- as we go through breaking it down, maybe some of the reasons will come to the surface a bit more f- for you then. Yes, yeah. exactly. And having said that, before we get in, what's your opinion, Warren? Do you know, I, it, I've i been through a real roller coaster with this because... That's a good word. Roller coaster is a good <laughs> word, yes. Yeah, well, going into it, I, I for the longest time before we knew what even who was going to be the artist, I was really hoping that we were going to get a gear change and go back to having a, a more up-tempo, rocky kind of number, a bit sort of along the lines of You Know My Name. I, deep down, I knew they probably wouldn't, but I was still hoping for that, especially as it's his last film. Uh, I thought it would, you know, a, bit, a sort of big exit to sort of bookend the big entry that he had with You Know My Name. Then, of course, it was announced that Billie Eilish was doing it, and I immediately knew that we weren't going to get a big hitting song because that would kind of just go against everything else that she does. And also, she's got another one. She's another one with the type of voice that lends itself more to the type of song that we've got than it would for a You Know My Name type of song. So I knew we weren't going to get that. Mm. So then you kind of start thinking, okay, it's going to be probably going to be a similar vibe. It's going to be a, a more of a ballad or a, you know a slower song. And you think, what do you want from a slower song? So when the song first played, I was listening to it. And I, I mean, I, when the when the initial teaser dropped, I loved it. I thought, this is great. This is really atmospheric. Me too, uh, really, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I loved the clip. I, th- I thought, wow. And it had so much potential to grow into something huge. And my first immediate reaction was 
that that it didn't get to where I thought it was going to, and I was hoping that it would go to emotionally. I just feel that it lacked that extra gear. And then there's the James Bond references, which we will definitely get onto, which I'm not going to lie, have jarred from the word go and still do. Putting all that aside, that was my initial reaction. Now, and I think quite quickly, in fact, I grew to really, really love it as a song. I definitely love it as a song, especially if you take away the James Bond, the two kind of really jarring James Bond bits. If you took them out, I think if we were looking at this as a Billie Eilish back catalogue song before No Time to Die was released, I think we'd be looking at it as one of her best uh, best songs, most beautiful songs, and we'd probably be looking at it as as actually something that had potential to be a great Bond song if they bonded it up a little bit, as they say. Mm -hmm. My opinions sort of are parallel with that a little bit. If I just heard this and didn't know that it was a song for a James Bond film, I'd think it was great, yeah. I definitely think that. I, I do, but yeah, and as a Bond song, I think it's it's for me, it's definitely nowhere near the bottom of the ladder in terms of Bond songs, but it's there, there are definitely some worse songs in, in the back catalogue for me, but it doesn't quite get to the, the pinnacle of being a fantastic Bond song for me. But I do love it as a song and I, I'm looking forward to performing it and I'm looking forward to, to breaking it down with you today. But, but yeah, it's, I, I'm, I've generally speaking, I've got a good feeling about it. And I think, and we will touch more on this later, but I really think, I really believe it's going to work brilliantly within the context of the film. Everything I've seen that I know about the film and I've, I'm, I've stayed spoiler free. So I've only seen trailers and, and little bits, but everything I've seen, I think that the, the vibe and the and the low key and the, and the way that this song resonates and will resonate within the pre-titles. I, I've just got a feeling it's going to work brilliantly. But well, that, yeah, sure. And that is another thing, too. I mean, it's hard to get too critical of something that is meant to work in a film, which nobody has seen yet. So. Well, does it give it a really sort of big disadvantage straight away? Because we've now got into the habit where... Perhaps, you know, in, in certainly the first few decades, you probably wouldn't have heard the Bond song until you heard it in context of the film. Even my own kind of original cinematic, you know, when I went to see uh, Moonraker for the first time or whatever, I had not, or uh, A View to a Kill, I hadn't actually seen the song until I saw the film. Yeah, well, I mean, it's never going to change now because the, the releasing the song when they did was a massive part of the marketing campaign and it's worked to an absolute treat. It sure has, But yeah. the Bond community from what I'm seeing, I would say it definitely has erred more on the negative than the positive. And I think the trouble is the negative side, they are really, really strong and vocal about it. When someone's negative, I, I find that they're really, really opinionated and very, very forceful about that negativity. But I, I kind of feel like the Bond community, it doesn't actually do them any favours now to hear the song before the film because... I think when they see it, if they saw it for the first time in the context of the film, I think their reaction to it would be a markedly different one to hearing it as they have done early and out of context. Yeah, I think I'd agree. It's just, unfortunately, the times that we live in. I mean, that's the arena that the James Bond producers and all filmmakers and creative people, you do have to just live there. That things are going to go out ahead of time and everyone's going to analyze them to death and... Uh, there's a lot of haters out there, you know, which I'm not. And 
they are going to put their opinions out. They're not going to be able to stop themselves. And, and you know, as you know, people online tend to be a bit more, sometimes a bit more aggro than they're going to be face-to-face, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they just got to put up with all that. And then you have to have such a thick skin if you're a, a creative person, especially if you're in charge of any kind of franchise that is so, you know, loved like this and has been going on for so long. And that they have managed to continue to try to, evolve and have stay current from one decade to the other. I mean, now that we're going on like 60 years, I mean, it's it's unbelievable that the films are as good as they are and kind of reinvent themselves constantly for that long. The world yeah. was a completely different one in the in the 50s, you know, when the source material was created for the series to come out of in the first place. And so, but that's what it is. It gets out there and everybody feels like they have to put their opinions in on their way to work or whatever it is they're doing. And yeah, it can get it can get dark. Well, one of the things that, that's coming up a lot is you've got these sort of maybe the slightly older generation or the guys that are around have been around Bond for a long time that talk about wanting Shirley Bassey or, or saying that this song, uh, it doesn't sound like a James Bond song in that it doesn't have the James Bond sound, perhaps. Sure. So the question that I think we should discuss is, is there a set formula for Bond songs? Is there a, a James Bond sound when it comes to the songs? I think you could say that there are, there are certain things that you can associate with uh, James Bond. As you uh, alluded to a few minutes ago, I think some of them are in this song. There are sort of obvious overtures to try to add something that is the James Bond sound to a song. So yeah. uh, that alone would make you think, yeah, there are definitely things that do it. But, uh, you know, that is one of the things I really like about the series is that they were always able to mix it up. You know, when you had Goldfinger be the massive hit that it was uh, against the opinion of one of the producers of the film, Harry Saltman, he didn't think it was a very good song at all. And then it ended up knocking, I think, Hard Day's Night off of the number one spot as the soundtrack. The soundtrack went to number one. Hmm. Yeah. And, and then he flipped and did Thunderball, which was even bigger than Goldfinger as a song. And then all of a sudden, you know, completely changed gears and you got you only live twice. Just when you were in, in, in fear of having a bit of a caricature of what a Bond song was, boom, he changed it and gave you something completely different. And then you got an instrumental title. Then you went from, you know, hip people like uh, Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones and Nancy Sinatra to Louis Armstrong, timeless artist. And, yeah. you know, and, and even when the series went on into the 70s, to have something like The Man with the Golden Gun be followed by something like Nobody Does It Better. You know, they were always able to give people something that they didn't quite expect. Well, you've got this great theory, and it's one that I've that you, you've talked to me about and I've really taken it on because it's such a great point and, I, and it's so true. And I hadn't ever really thought about it until you said it. And now it's, it's so stuck in my mind. I can't get it out. Your eight year, uh, eight year theory that you, that you gave me, do you want to explain that one? Yeah. Um, I noticed that if you take any eight year period in the James Bond series, you're going to get something that is, has a lot of variety in it. So if you start with something like From Russia With Love and go all the way to Diamonds Are Forever, uh, you're going to get things like You Only Live Twice at the same time as you get something like Goldfinger. If you go in the seventies, you'll start with Diamonds Are Forever. You'll end up with something like Moonraker, which is completely different. Mm. And you can do that throughout anything. Even if you go from Goldeneye through Die yeah. Another Day, there's a huge variety. There isn't one thing that you can say was the overriding sound of a decade or a period, an eight-year period in the James Bond series. And because of a certain 
historical things like uh, the tenure of most of the actors or uh, MGM having a brief period of financial uncertainty in the early 90s. Eight years seems to be a good kind of span. There is often a break that you can see eight years you know, within the film. Yeah, but then you take the last eight years, or certainly if you take the last five films, if anything, the last five films has probably established a James Bond sound in the songs anyway, probably more so than any other five film sequence, apart from maybe the first five is probably a comparison, but it's certainly the last five, maybe we've got into a bit of a rut. If anything, that has established a, a James Bond sound for the songs, at least in Daniel Craig's era. They certainly do fall into a into a very similar uh, sound and pattern, don't they? They do. And actually, if you look at the last eight years, now with uh, No Time to Die being the sort of end of it, there's never been a time where there has been more of a solid sound. No. Everything is very... There's a lot of similarities in what we've heard in the last eight years. And if you take any eight years previous, as we were saying, uh, you're yeah. never going to hear that. You're going to hear a huge variety from Tina Turner to Madonna or from Rita Coolidge to, you know, AHA. There's like a huge amount of variety that we're, we're not mm. hearing as the songs go at the moment. I think it's important to point out, though, that... Uh, well, this is my opinion. I don't know how you feel about it. But when we talk about the James Bond sound, I think there's almost actually quite a divide between the James Bond sound of the scores and the James Bond sound of the songs. And I think actually previously uh, when I've talked about the James Bond sound, I've used it as like an all encompassing thing for the music of Bond as a whole. But actually, I think now what I'm realizing from having these chats with you is that the James Bond sound definitely has a formula and a, and a clear pattern and sound in the scores because you've got John Barry he has a very very distinctive sound and I think that David Arnold as well as taking that sound on then created his own sound for his five films that you can clearly identify so I think it's easier to to talk about the James Bond sound with the scores but actually now I've realized that I don't really think there is a James Bond sound, particularly with the songs. As you say, there's, there's certain little elements. There's certain chords um, that we probably talk about in, in in a bit. But there are, as a whole, you know, you can't say that compar- comparing Live and Let Die to Goldfinger to The Living Daylights to Writings on the Wall that there is really anything to, to sort of knit those together and say there is one particular ingredient in terms of the sound that links all of those songs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The only thing I could possibly say is that they all sound expensive. That's about the only <laughs> thing I could say. You know what I mean? Like they all sound, yeah. live and let die, you think, wow, that is just huge and cinematic and, and you know, sweeping and exciting. Writings on the wall is not um, exciting in that sense, in an action kind of sense, but it is huge and elegant and, you know, sweeping and cinematic and expensive sounding in its own way. Well, does that come down to the orchestration then? Because for for me, it, it does. I mean, you, you get the huge orchestra on pretty much every single song, even on the more rocky ones, you know, like View to a Kill or, um, well, maybe not View to a Kill, but, you know, you've still got the strings in the background. You've got an orchestral background. But this with this song, how does the orchestration compare? Because for me, I feel it's a little bit lightweight in a lot of places and, and lacks that grandiose bond sound from other songs i tell you what let's come back to orchestration because I've, I've, here's another linked question then to to that last point then so the question is 
are we in a bit of a rut at the moment? For the last five songs, certainly the last three, have we got trapped in a one-dimensional way of writing for Bond songs? Because the last three have got a very similar vibe and actually the last five are all kind of linked. Yes, that's true. There are some common elements we're hearing related to our little eight-year theory that we were talking about. There are some common elements that we've been hearing over the last several films. And I think what's given me some conflict with No Time to Die, uh, this idea that the way the songs sound, you know, the way you produce a song affects how it sounds. If you've ever heard covers by some people that kind of stay faithful to the initial song, you get one experience from it, and then people can completely reinterpret a song and turn it into something brand new. That's really interesting, and it shows you how much an arrangement and production actually can affect a song. So there's that, but there is also the actual kind of construction of a song as a piece of intellectual creativity, or whatever you want to call it, a composition. There is a way that songs are put together. And the James Bond series... Apart from the production, you know, something like The Living Daylights sounds completely different than something like Live and Let Die. You also have the constructions of the songs vary quite greatly. And you can even look at what I call the sort of lyrical meter, the way it's put together. There are a lot of different ways to write a song. And for example, when you've got a song with a title in it, uh, like Goldfinger or For Your Eyes Only, the songs start with the title. Yeah. So you get it, and then it follows through, and you get the story behind it. Then there are other songs, like Writings on the Wall and No Time to Die, where the title of the song basically is the last bit of information in the first bit of the song you get, and then it repeats, kind of. So the last thing you hear is that. And when you hear something like Goldfinger and For Your Eyes Only, if you try to sing Goldfinger over For Your Eyes Only, it doesn't work because the way the amount of beats of lyrics and and melody are put together are completely different. Yes. But uh, there are kind of similarities between Writings on the Wall and No Time to Die, the way they are put together. You can actually sing the second half of No Time to Die over the sort of chords and melody to writing on the wall, and it basically fits quite well. Fool me once, fool me twice, saw you down a paradise. Now you'll never see me cry, there's just no time to die. You know, it actually works over the chords to writings on the wall, which a song in the series had never really had before which is a strange kind of development when it's the one previous. As well, you can kind of do that with the first half of No Time to Die in Bits of Skyfall. It's kind of reminiscent in a way that we haven't actually heard in uh, previous eight-year periods or any other periods, you know, when something happened. Even something like A View to a Kill and The Living Daylights, which are two, at the time, contemporary, very popular pop groups that have collaborated with John Barry to make a song. The songs don't match up in any way. They don't sound like they're actually influenced by each other in any way. No. And I think there is kind of, from my personal opinion, uh, too close uh, an influence in these uh, last two songs in the new song we're hearing now. Well, it's interesting, though, because Billy and Phineas have done interviews where they talked about composing it. And I think... We'll have a little listen now, actually. Let's have a listen to Billy and Finnis talking about composing No Time to Die. 
<laughs> a computer. And you my... made the, so you made these fantastic songs in the bed in your bedroom, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we just kind of have always made music wherever we are. Um, you know, we 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 uh, wrote and recorded the Bond song in a tour bus in Texas, and on the tour <laughs> that we ended up writing the Bond song, like a couple of days before we were actually able to write the Bond song, we rented out a studio to go try to write it. <laughs> does somebody just give you a call? How does it work? I don't actually remember. <laughs> I, uh, I I do know that we've been wanting to, to make a Bond song for years. And I remember at the beginning of last year, it was like we kind of told our whole team, like, hey, if, if any Bond things come up, we yeah. want to be involved if we can possibly be. Um, whatever we have to do, we will do. In your career, there are a few things that are as desirable as, as doing a Bond song. And we did not take the opportunity lightly, and, and we really um, just tried to work as hard as we could. Get the call, and it's something you say you've, you really, really wanted. Where do you even begin with writing a Bond song? Um, we had an intense amount of writer's block as soon as it was, uh, mm -hmm. like as soon as we were called to action, and then after like a day of that, again, like we, it was. I totally forgot we had that day in that studio. Miserable day. So you went in the studio and it didn't work. No, but that's because of the studio. <laughs> to be honest with you, we don't work well in studios. I just. It does not. It doesn't do the same thing. Um, and then I think after that day, we Phineas came up with this just chord progression, and immediately we were just like, oh. They were definitely part of our psyche. Already. I mean, mm. I think especially just because of of how much of a moment um, Skyfall had been for those movies. We were familiar with Know My uh, Know My Name and uh, Another Way to Die, and then obviously it's sort of the classics like Goldfinger and yeah. um, Live and Let Die. But I mean, I, th I think especially like. We wanted, once we were sort of really sitting down to write it, we, we did go re-listen to everything. As much to, to know what had already been done before and what to avoid. And not to copy anything. Yeah, we, we really wanted to make sure that we weren't making something that just felt like we were copying other great songs. Mm -hmm. So it was very helpful to listen to these songs. And with the lyrics, I mean, how much of the movie did you know of the story before you wrote the lyrics? We had a meeting with Barbara Broccoli in Ireland in like the beginning of September, she came to a show and she basically gave us like a little hint of what the first scene, okay. what has, what's happening. How long did it take to write the song in the end? Once you, once you got past the writer's block? From, writer's from block. real sort of start of like the first thing that actually ended up making another song, like about three days. Which is pretty quick, it's isn't it? Very or is that quick, quick for, for you? That's really quick for is us. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the film yet? Yes. <gasps> Have you? Yeah. And? Yeah. And what? Have you, have you like signed secrecy? I'm sure. Um, you yes, for sure. It's amazing. <laughs> and when you see the film with your song, I mean, that's got to be. Oh my god, I'm gonna pee myself. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. We haven't actually seen it with our song. We haven't yet. seen it with the no, song. No, we, we saw it when we were still working on the orchestration for the song. So they had. We saw like a, a, a half done version of it though. So right. I know that it's gonna be like crazier. Who does it matter most? Your mum's point of view, <laughs> or, <laughs> or Daniel Craig's? My mom's going to be for Daniel Craig. She's actually in the room with us. Um, so what do you, I think you better say, Mom, what are you going to say? Wow, it's a really hard one. Well, this is the first song I know Daniel's opinion of, of ours. Oh, do you? So. you know the opinion? What's he said? Well, he had to like it. I don't, if, Daniel doesn't, if Daniel doesn't like it, they don't, you, you, know, you don't get the he's job. He's got a big say in it. We yeah. learned that from this. I didn't, I didn't think that would happen, but he's, he's really involved. So in, he could have vetoed yeah. it, wow. Absolutely, yeah. 
<laughs> Wait, our mom's opinion is also really important. I just want to oh, say sorry. that. Oh, sorry. Our mom's opinion is very important. Tell me, what does mom think of it? I, she, I think she loves it. Mom loves, loves but everything. But here's the problem, do. though. She does love everything we yeah. do. So. so the interesting thing there, Jason, is they said, quite clearly said, we listened back to make sure we weren't copying. So let's talk about the chord progression, because... Um, as well as the lyric side of things and the meter of the lyric and, and, and it having a very similar vibe, we must talk about this chord progression because they've used a three chord progression that we've seen in You Know My Name. We've seen it in Another Way to Die. We've seen it in Skyfall. So let's look at that. I mean, I, I think you have your trusty handy guitar to hand. Guitar um, in hand, yes. And hopefully, hopefully you can demo what it is that we're talking it's that it's that sort of descending three chord pattern isn't it exactly and if we start back with you know my name the chord sequence we've got there is the b g e so if you just give us that absolutely so so that's you know my name now that was obviously a, an original idea at the time but then in the next in the next film we had another way to die where although we didn't necessarily get those those chords all the time we ended up with the bass line we did yes so that's the root notes from the chord from you know my name so there's there's definitely a, a linked idea there there is indeed um, yes so I mean, you, you still get that same same vibe. But then, if we skip now to Skyfall, it's it's used again in Skyfall, albeit in a different key. The actual chord sequence is exactly the same. Exactly, and the song is very different to uh, Another Way to Die and You Know My Name. You know, we have something that uh, was described to me many years ago by one of my composition teachers as uh, four square. When you have something that has four chords to the bar that are very slow and measured, that you hear in songs like um, like Imagine by John Lennon or something, that's what you get yeah. in Skyfall. So the overall effect of the song is quite different than the two that preceded it, but the three chords that sort of open the composition are... which are the same chords in a different key than the last uh, two songs we've just been talking about. Yeah, and, I mean, and then, although we didn't get that chord sequence in writings on the wall no we have definitely got it in no time to die we do indeed different key again but now it's in e yeah. and we get we've, we get e minor c major a major so just, we do. just give, give us, us a that one yeah. and one of the things that this um allows the songwriters to do which i assume is why people have been inspired to do this is way back in 1962, when the James Bond theme was originally created for the film Dr. No, John Barry, I believe it is uh, legally safe to say, was responsible for coming up with the... Uh... Yeah, common, commonly called the vamp. Exactly, uh, which we've heard in many, many iterations and uh, recreations, you know, from Bond 77 through to the present day. And that particular chord progression that we've been talking about that's appearing in all the keys that it is appearing in allows you to do that. So if you play E minor and then C major and then A, well, that does allow you to uh, impose the... 
fan yeah, over the yeah. chords. And so that is what happens in Skyfall, and you get to hear the same thing. It's inside those three chords. So I suppose, as we're talking about James Bond music and songs and uh, the sound, that's one thing I guess everyone has agreed is worth trying to sort of, you know, subconsciously suggest in their song. So then, okay, let's go back to Billy and Phineas then. What do we think? Do we think that they listen to the songs and put this progression in? Because when we think about these five films of Daniel Craig's, there's definitely a thread and a link going through the narrative of the actual films now. It was, I mean, it was all retconned in the last film, and we know that's going to be taken forward in the new film. Mm -hmm. So I wonder whether they had a brief to link the music together and it kind of makes logical sense to me if i was writing a bond song i would and this was daniel craig's last film that i was doing it for i would try and in a subtle way i would try and reference the the songs to kind of you know that that would be an idea that i would look into for sure so do we think that it was a deliberate thing that they tried to do that or do we think it was purely accidental or were they just so struggling for inspiration that they just sort of ran home to Mama for the for the kind of easy chord sequence that everybody knows or everyone seems to think is working for these films? I don't know. What do you think? I have such respect for anyone who faces the sort of blank canvas and comes up with something that, you know, yeah. I, I couldn't possibly, you know, surmise how the process came to them to come up with this particular song or whatever but it does seem to me as a personal you know feeling that it is pretty obviously cribbed from the last two i don't know if that's subconscious or not but you know it clearly doesn't have any hallmarks i mean the sound is i think the sound of the song is quite unique to her and that's partly because of billy eilish's voice i mean she does have a very distinctive sound and style to herself but the song has, has definitely slipped into that uh, that pattern of the last five. And I mean, so the question I ask again, really, and discuss this is, are we in a rut? Because we certainly we certainly are in a pattern of churning out very similar sounding songs. I mean, goodness me, the next one has to move away from not only that chord progression, but from the, that sound of wherever they go next, which, whoever the next Bond is, or whether even if, I don't know, whether Daniel Craig did come back for one more, but I don't think he will. But I I just think we they can't churn out the same chord progression, the same sound again. And the same, and around the same tempo, and yeah. Yeah. And also the same overall approach, really. Like, Billie Eilish doesn't sound like Adele, but if you compare it to other songs, you know, we've got three kind of piano ballads in a row, which we've never yeah. had before. That's almost become the James Bond sound at the moment. It's like you start with a with an intro, drop to, or start with piano or drop to piano, start with just piano and vocal, kind of go into a bit of a build and then go out with it. I mean, it's... Yeah, a minor key piano ballad, which, you know, you only yeah. live twice isn't, which Moonraker isn't. Lots of them aren't. Yeah. Okay, so there are some other things I noticed with this song. I mean, the there's some, some other really obvious similar things between writings on the wall and no time to die one of which being this this string run that happens so if you listen to the string run in uh, writings on the wall yes and then compare that to what they've just produced in no time to die i mean they are literally literally almost identical aren't they so 
it's interesting that's probably come from an orchestration point of view which probably was Hans Zimmer I'm guessing so again wonder whether there's just a coincidence that these things are kind of sounding very similar or if they are just struggling for sort of creative originality I don't know um I I like it it's no problem with it I, I really like it but it's it just it feels then that the two songs just end up sounding really quite quite similar in, in indeed yeah and i think that is again where you sort of have to separate the i don't know the intellect everyone has their intellectual approach to something with their emotional you know visceral approach to something in that it is fine and it is enjoyable and it's a good song completely it's only when you know you realize that it's a james bond song that's where my sort of internal emotional kind of conflict comes from with this song and that it, it does repeat lots of ideas that string run comes in somewhere in the song in a similar sort of place as you get the string run in writings on the wall and yeah it doesn't actually in my it's only my opinion it doesn't make it better they haven't taken that idea and expanded it and made it bigger. You know, I think uh, no. uh, the, the arrangement of uh, Writings on the Wall was by someone named Jack Redford, who to me is a, it's a gorgeous orchestration I agree. of a song. I, I, I don't think Writings on the Wall gets the credit it deserves as a song. I really don't. Yeah. I think that people's opinion of Sam Smith's voice, whatever their opinion of Sam Smith's voice is, it's, that's fine. That's their opinion. But I really, really, I've always believed that that's marred their opinion of the song because they just don't like his performance and therefore say, oh, I, I don't like the song. But the thing is, when again, when the teaser dropped for Writings on the Wall, everybody was going nuts over it again, saying, wow, this sounds amazing. And it does um, sound amazing. I, I truly think it's, it's you're hearing, you know, the world's finest musicians play an exquisite arrangement to a song. You're really hearing the best that you can get. And I don't quite hear that in No Time to Die. I think, oh, it doesn't quite, like, if you're going to go for it, you know, there are, you can't deny when you hear something that is truly brilliantly put together. And, and yeah, I find this, this particular in things seems like a like a slight kind of shadow of the power of that arrangement. I'm not even saying that No Time Did I has to get as big. There are ways to get small and subtle and still be really kind of like just arresting, stopping you in your tracks to listen to it. And uh, to me, that doesn't have that kind of creative energy behind, behind the orchestration to the song, for whatever reason. Yeah, I I must say, I've... I don't fully share your opinion on on that i mean i i I want music to take me to 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 other places and i do find this song does do that great yeah um emotionally but i just but i do also agree with you that i would like it to have gone i'd like the orchestration and the performance of it to have gone up another level and that that would have resonated more with me emotionally i think skyfall gets there i think skyfall gets there in that last third of that song it goes it really goes to that that level that I'm talking about. And that's why it's great that you and I are talking about this, because we can kind of share our opinions. Definitely, yeah. yeah because, yeah, I, I feel her voice and the sort of vulnerability you get with her performance of the song and stuff doesn't seem, to me, it doesn't feel like it's been interpreted and supported by the orchestral background. Well, she's. Got, I think the thing is, and you, you're more experienced on this side than I am. But I think it's. It must be a challenge to 
orchestrate around her voice. And I think we saw it a bit with Sam Smith as well, because their voices don't, I don't think they lend themselves to be heavily orchestrated underneath because they have a very unique sound, but it's quite a small, a small sound. They're not a belter singer like a Shirley Bassey or Tom Jones or even Adele. So you've got to kind of decorate cleverly around that you you can't put in a massive orchestra with a rock beat and all of that otherwise you just swamp that particular singer and uh, so that must be a, a creative decision to to not swamp Billie Eilish's voice in a massive orchestration but then as you say it, it then it does kind of feel as a Bond song we talked about it earlier on I think that's maybe what it lacks in this song is 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 that big sound of a huge orchestra that makes it sound expensive. <laughs> I suppose. Even even if it's not necessarily a big sound, it just didn't it doesn't seem like an incredibly supportive arrangement to her voice. Like there are ways to get incredibly small and sort of impressionistic and still create this atmosphere. It feels just a bit kind of tacked on in the background. The the tacked on thing might be something we'll come back to in a minute. But um, <laughs> I want to want to talk about lyrics because have you done much composing where you've written lyrics, or are you a composer that gets a lyricist to write lyrics? Uh, well, I've done both. I mean, I've done a fair amount of arranging for uh, for other people, and uh, there are some songs in my past as well. I like a song. I'm not someone who is like an instrumental composer who doesn't know who doesn't have an opinion on how songs work and that kind of thing i mean i'm a big fan okay so lyrically what are your opinions about this because i'll, I'll give you i'll start with mine this time I'll, I'll give you mine i think this is actually such a strong song lyrically i'd go as far as to say i think creatively it's probably one of the best songs in the series for lyrics I think it's I think they they just flow so beautifully mm. and it, it seems to they make a lot more sense and they seem to be telling a story. I mean it would be interesting to compare it to the actual story of the film and see how closely it follows the plot. Absolutely. But I mean in the series some of the songs the lyrics don't make a great deal of sense at times, you know. They the lyrics are chosen to fit the melody or chosen to fit the song that they're writing for i don't think they always actually have a lot of thought going in behind to actually matching up to what's happening in the story but this i feel is different and i I think it's just a fantastically written song lyrically and i'm not someone actually that really spends a lot of time looking at lyrics normally um i'm much more about the melody and the harmony but Mm. it really leaps out at me in, in this song you know, just just the way that the lines flow and the words that they've chosen, I, I find them they they really resonate with me. I know that I know that one of the common complaints with Billy is that sometimes it's hard to understand what she's singing about, and and I do feel that as well. But the words that are clear, <laughs> um, yeah, they really resonate with me. What what do you think about about them? Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like it's telling a story. Uh, like we were saying before, we're going to have to wait to see the film and how it pairs out. But from the trailer, you can hear that talking about, you know, being a pair and then not and falling for a lie and, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, the death of paradise. It does seem like, yeah, it, it clearly is telling something that's directly reflected in the actual plot of the film as opposed to something like. Uh, Goldfinger or The Man with the Golden Gun where you are describing a character in the film and something like Thunderball you're describing someone which uh, we'll probably talk about in uh, the subsequent episodes 
people are confused as to whether they're actually talking about the villain in Thunderball or whether yeah. they're talking about James Bond when they're talking about it. What are they talking about? But they are talking about characters, all of these songs. Where this yeah. seems to be talking about the emotional underpinning of what is happening in the story that is to come. And yeah, I look forward to hearing that and seeing how it all plays out. I think also, and talking about the meter of the lyrics, which you talked about earlier, and, and when we say meter, in my case anyway, I'm talking a bit about the rhythm because words and and certain words with more than one syllable they flow into a rhythm and in in some ways the rhythm of the the words actually gets chosen for you like for a perfect example of that which i remember from my youngest time is the word amsterdam okay and it and it fits it fits a particular rhythm so if you've got a in music if you've got a, a part that's like dum 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 and it's written if you know, I remember doing a study as a child where it was all around this dotted rhythm, bum ba dum bum ba dum bum ba dum bum ba dum, and my dad was trying to, who was teaching me, was trying to say, give me a word that fitted the rhythm, and he said, if you say Amsterdam, that's the that's the rhythm you're playing, and I said, what do you mean Amsterdam? He said, well, you can't say Amsterdam any other way than Amsterdam, 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 Amsterdam. You can't say Amsterdam, and you don't say. You know, you wouldn't say it, you wouldn't rhythmically say it in any other way. It's just the way that it comes out. Right. Um, and that applies to obviously a, a number of words. But I mean, just the line that the blood you bleed is just the blood you owe. The way that that's written rhythmically, it it's not it's not shoehorned to fit a rhythm. It just the, that whole line just flows out in a really natural way. Yeah. And that's what I really love about the lyric meter and the lyrics of this song is it just flows beautifully i would have to agree oh that's great we're agreeing <laughs> or something <laughs> okay so what else we got here um speaking of the similarities uh between these chords and the way the song is put together and how it seems to be awfully similar to the last two in many ways actually does kind of strike me as uh, something I'm seeing lately because I sometimes do uh, workshops and I'm involved in, you know, sort of like looking at people's compositions and, and, and kind of commenting constructively on how they're put together. And something I've noticed, which is sort of, it makes me sound like a little bit like an old man, which I'm not yet, but uh, my career, my, my compositional creative journey, precedes the internet. So when I started, my life was about, you know, hooking up with people. You had to find out what songs were from other people and you had to, you know, kind of uh, find the, the mavens, the, the musical people who were the hipsters and you had to get to them and listen to their records and find out what was going on. And if there were compositional ideas or like arrangement ideas or things, you had to find people to explain them to you. You know, before the internet, you had to do this. Yeah. And the record store in my hometown uh, in northern Canada, we used to uh, beg the man who worked at the record store to get certain albums in because we knew that they existed, but we had to hear them. And the only way to hear them was to buy them. And uh, the records had to come in on a bus. They came in once a week from Toronto, and so we wow. had to beg him, can you please, Chris, can you please order these albums? And, and then we'd come the next Wednesday and say, did, did they come in? Did you do it? And he'd go, oh, not this week. And we'd go, ah. And it was, it was a bit of a chore, but that's how you discovered things. And I think that the amount of creativity in the world is still, like, musically, as high as it's ever been. There's just so much brilliant music being made right now. But an interesting thing I do have to say I notice, and it might be 
uh, just because of the proliferation of technology we have. It's so easy for people to begin creating something, to begin producing something. You know, it's, it's easier than it's ever been, thanks mm. to software and workstations and everything else. That uh, I do notice that there are a lot of things that are I hear and that are presented to me that do kind of sound a little similar to what's going on in the general musical world that we live in really like this last decade. And I'm a bit surprised at that sometimes. And I will say to people, at the risk of sounding like an old man, you know, we now live with connections to YouTube and Spotify and our phones and whatever else we're doing, that if we want to jump into like Monteverdi, it's there. If we want to jump into the classical period, it's there. If we want to get into the deepest, darkest jazz or or Ginger Baker in Africa 70 with Fela Kuti or whatever, it's all, we have access to all of it. I had assumed when this happened that music would continue to be crazier and more expressive and more experimental because everyone's got access to so many more influences than they ever had. But actually, I'm surprised, and part of this in film is potentially due to temp culture. You know, films are tempted with songs. Just explain what, when you say temp, for oh, anyone yeah, sure. listening, what, what you mean. Oh, of course. Uh, now, uh, films are edited in a fashion that's called non-linear. So they are put in a uh, software program, and they are cut together. And oftentimes, when the editor, the person who actually cuts the film together needs to find the rhythm of a scene, they put a piece of music from another film in. So this is called temp music, temporary music. And then they cut the scene, so you've actually got a scene that has rhythm to it. You can take this piece of music off and look at the scene that you have to write music to, and even when you haven't heard the temp music, you can see that there's a rhythm to the way the scene is cut that wouldn't necessarily yeah. be there if there was no music, if the editor was just cutting to his or her own feelings. And so you can find a piece of music that sort of starts to hit things, starts to reflect what visually yeah. is going on, which is quite exciting. But what happens sometimes is people get a bit too attached to this piece of music and then say, you know, we need something to sound like this piece of music. Mm. And you never can quite go off on a completely original tangent of your own because yeah. they are so in love with what they're hearing. So it could be partly that, but for whatever the reason is, I do notice that it seems like there is less... Like this is my personal opinion, my personal observation. Uh, it does seem like there is less wild experimental eclectic creativity in much music being written than I would have expected considering we have access to so many influences now that we never did before. And so well, I'm surprised that people, it's almost like sometimes people are getting less creative and experimental as technology drives us forward instead of more. And so in that sense, maybe it is a very 2020 thing to have the new James Bond song actually sound more like the last two than one from like 45 years ago. Is it getting harder to come up with original stuff? Because at the end of the day, we work in a, in a system where we have 12 notes to choose from. And, you know, there's obviously hundreds of thousands of combinations that you can put them into, but we have been composing with 12 notes for many, many centuries. So, are we and the speed as well that we're going through genres and and styles over the last century are we running out of ideas i mean is it just that it is it's becoming harder to find something original because it's been done is that is that a possibility 
I don't think so personally, no. But obviously we're also talking about a commercial enterprise that has enormous pressure on it uh, when I'm speaking of the James Bond series. So that might uh, create a certain amount of pressure to do something that is going to be as, as guaranteed popular with the mass audience that it is trying to appeal to as possible as well. Years ago, I read yeah. a quote from a director named Vim Venders who said that, uh, and I paraphrase, so I may be getting this wrong, it was quite some time ago, but uh, he'd said something along the lines of, if someone gives you a million dollars, you can make just about any movie you want. You have enough money, it's this brilliant thing. If someone gives you $10 million, you can make something uh, really amazing but there are, you know, pressures on you. Things are a bit more complicated as to just doing whatever you want because you've got $10 mm. million to play with. And if someone gives yeah. you $100 million, and this was a few decades ago, you can almost do nothing at all. There is so much stress and pressure and outside influences <laughs> on you of what you have to do with this $100 million. So, you know, something the size of the James Bond series, you can never kind of uh, minimize how important it is that I think there are endless possibilities in music now to be creative now, as much as there have ever been, if not more so. But obviously, yeah, some really weird left-field song would probably make a lot of people really nervous if they tried to attach it to a series this big, regardless of how inventive it might be. Well, let's move things on, if I may. I'd like to talk now a little bit about the... Johnny Marr influence, and in particular that chord at the end. Let's have a little listen to Johnny Marr talking about his contribution, which came after, clearly came after Billy Eilish and Phineas had finished writing the song. Great awards, and you're here tonight, you're, you're performing with Billy Eilish. Yeah, that's why I'm here, yeah, to perform with Billy Eilish and Phineas and, and Hans Zimmer, the Bond band, as it were. Yeah, do the Bond theme, yeah. How's it been venturing into that world of Bond and doing all this with Hans and Billy and Phineas? Well, uh, when I got asked to do it, I was thrilled because growing up as a British boy in the late 60s and early 70s and 80s and all of that, the, to me, the Bond theme should have guitar in it. You know, I mean, especially the, the sort of John Barry stuff. And t the sound of it to me is... is the, the guitar riff to some people it's trumpets right I discovered but to me it's the guitar which it would be so uh, it, so it was a real it was a super thrill to be able to do it and we were already working on the film and, and then I heard that Billy, Billy had done the song and that was already a really good idea to me before I'd even heard the song I thought it was a really smart idea and um, I was even before Billy had won all the Grammys and stuff I, I did a couple of shows with, with her last year uh, so I was well aware of what she did and knew her music and um, and then when I heard the song I thought this is fantastic because it's very brave you know it's been really minimalist and her sound and then the trick was to sort of make it was to bondify it was already a great song but from a sound point of view to bondify it without doing the obvious you know and, and being it's really easy to be bombastic you know so try, sort of try a case of like Less is more, sort of thing, and and making it, and of course making it work with the film. So it's always it's all a process. It's all a process. A bit of experimentation, taking it one direction, bringing it back, keeping your eye on on the integrity of the song and all that. But working on the movie has been a, a blast. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's at least about the maybe the fifth film I've done with hands now. It's great. So 
as you can hear there, he said, now he what he actually said, the trick was not to do anything obvious, was to bond, was to make it bondy, but not to do anything obvious. So, okay, first of all, he is clearly from that interview, he has had added his guitar in after Billy and Phineas have finished doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So did they have a choice in that? Or was it taken out of their control? Or was it something that they said, yeah, we're, and they must have been on board with it. But I mean, for me, the that guitar chord at the end is the most jarring, <laughs> awful part about the song. It's the, it's the one bit about the song that I really don't like. I like everything else about the song. I really do. But that, I absolutely detest it. Mm. I, I, what do you think about it? I guess it's consistent with my impressions of the rest of the song, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. If you know what I mean. It, it seems like Die Another Day is an incredibly d divisive song. Or it was at the time, especially, right? When it came out, people said that is not a Bond song and that kind of thing. And it had followed The World Is Not Enough which some people said was a pretty modern version. You know, you're taking the two worlds of the classic Bond sound and something contemporary and smashing mm. them together, producing something yeah. that a lot of people thought was pretty successful. Yeah. But I did have to say, I like the fact that I heard Die Another Day. I personally like the idea of hearing something and going, oh, God, I didn't expect that. Wow, where'd that come from? Wow, you really... And I, I felt the same thing when I heard... Uh, writings on the wall, my personal reaction, which some people don't share, but my personal reaction was that when I heard it, I thought, oh, you can hear this piano thing, oh, and you can hear the orchestra coming in, and you can hear the voice coming in, and there was something about, well, clearly, around the three-quarter mark of this song, big drums are going to come in, or something's going to happen to take it up that next level. And when it didn't, I thought, oh, isn't that cool, actually? That, you know, you're expecting something and they gave you something you didn't expect. Yeah. And this, to me, doesn't give you any of that. Like, it gives you, oh, yeah, right, the James Bond chord at the end. Right, I get it. Like, that kind of thing. And, oh, it's a piano. It's about this. Okay, great. And, oh, yeah, right, I understand. And, you know, you could, oh, fool me once, fool me twice. You can sing that over the bit in writings on the wall it all sounds very like there's nothing in there that's giving me something i didn't expect if you removed writings on the wall from your memory and this you were coming into no time to die without writings on the wall in the cat so let's say they'd gone with the radiohead song and you are now hearing the Billie eilish song as it is do you think you'd feel differently about it yeah i do and that's the challenge that you know everybody has that someone can say well you're being far too critical and kind of analytical on this, just enjoy it for what it is. But sometimes, you know, when you are into something and you want to get into how it's made and you're aware of the legacy of something, you know, you can't help but be aware of these things. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about this chord then? This chord at the end, now, I think it's divided opinion, but probably more people are, I think, again, negative about it. So... I describe it, it's like a little bit like sucking on a lemon. It's got a very bitter taste. And, and don't get me wrong, um, that's not a criticism. The James Bond chord and the James Bond theme are one of the best pieces of music ever written. And I love it. And I, I sure love that chord. Yes, yes. And, and I love where it's used in the other parts of series uh, where it is used. But here, it just feels like, it almost like it feels like a gut punch um, at the end of that song because it's so bitter on a song that is such an emotionally raw song. This, this just almost feels almost in a way, it's like a parody in some ways. But 
why is it so bitter? What is it about this chord that makes it such a sharp feeling that it, it, you know, when I say sharp, I don't mean in terms of pitch, but I mean it's it has such a sharp sound to it. What is it? Mm -hmm. Well, it is a minor chord, and it also has something called a major seventh in it. And a major seventh is next to the note that defines the chord without sounding, I hope that doesn't sound too complicated, but so if you had an E minor chord, then the major seventh would be right next to E. So these things are kind of right, which mm -hmm. is jarring by anybody's, uh, you know, kind of opinion. So when you hear a chord like that, or then you've got those two notes that are rubbing right up against each other. That is the most uncomfortable sound in music, isn't it? I mean, when you're when you're growing up as a child and you're being educated in music and you're playing in bands, normally when you get that sound, it's where someone's playing a wrong note. Oh, when, yeah. Generally speaking, when you get those two notes right next to each other, clash like that, it's because somebody's playing a wrong note. It's the most uncomfortable sound and you're almost conditioned that it's wrong. Of course, the way John Barry uses it, because it's such a clashy sound, because it's so edgy and, and feels so uncomfortable, it makes it perfect for spy music. Because when you're trying to accompany a scene of James Bond in danger and sneaking around a, a, an airbase or somewhere he shouldn't be doing, by using that sound, it, it makes the, the person watching feel that there's an element of danger in it and it feels unsettled. So... That's the feeling it creates, of course. Exactly, yeah. And I think if you are approaching music from a sort of traditional perspective, when you hear a, uh, a major seven, uh, a lot of times I think you might be wanting it to resolve. Mm. And so then yeah. when this chord, when you hear it, you're waiting for it to turn into... And if it never does then it's the last chord and you're waiting for it to go somewhere that it yeah. doesn't. So that fills you with a certain amount of finality and yet, you know, unsettledness. Yes, tension and release, isn't it? And a lot of music, especially emotional music, is is created by creating a tension of the chord and then resolving the chord. It, it makes you feel relaxed, doesn't it? Now, if you don't uh, resolve the chord, then it keeps that tension going. Precisely. So yes. when you finish a piece on it, it's very, very tense. And I know that's probably what they're trying to set up in the film, but I just feel that that chord now has such a connection to the James Bond theme and to um, to that original sound that putting it in here, it just takes you out of the context of the song too much. Uh, I just, there, I think there are other ways they could have done it. I mean, if you do, if you take the Skyfall chord, the minor nine chord, which is basically like a slightly smooth version off of the minor major nine chord. So if you, if you just give us a minor nine chord, if you wouldn't mind. A minor nine chord, uh, yeah. Yeah, you see, now that's that's a, a, a nicer sounding chord that they could have maybe finished the piece off with that would have still had the James Bond sound but it wouldn't have been so jarring as that as that minor major nine but do you think it, that it's possible that there's a effect that they're trying a tiny bit too hard by putting that chord on the end of a song oh definitely definitely if, I if almost it's almost like it if you saw an episode of something like Rick and Morty or something and they went back in time or they went into the future where they were on James Bond's 
50. And whatever song that would be represented would end with that chord. Then yeah. Like, oh yeah, it's obviously a J-. like that's. It's almost like that's what you do if you're trying to convince something somebody that something's a James Bond song. If you haven't done it at that point, we'll put the chord in at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's that's really true. I think. Well, definitely from what Johnny Marr said that that they were trying to make it sound more Bondy, but that is like the most obvious thing that you could do. And he said we were trying not to make it obvious, but there just isn't anything else that you could do that is more obvious than that. There are. There are more subtle ways that they could have done it, I think. And I mean, the trumpet part is is really, really obvious as well. When he, when they play a little bit of the James Bond middle eight there as they well. They do indeed, yeah, yeah. But I mean, obviously what they're trying to do with that chord, I think, is bookend the run of Daniel Craig. You know, it starts with the James Bond theme at the end of Casino Royale and we're kind of ending with the last film. We've got that chord to kind of bring it home. But I don't know. I, I can see from that point of view, I can see where they're thinking with that. But I, I just think it in the context of the song, it, it just doesn't work at all uh, for me anyway. But I know you feel the same. I'm sure there'll be people listening that, that do like it. But I just think they could have they could have done it in a more subtle way. But anyway, let's move on. Let's talk about this James Bond trumpet bit, because the. Yeah. <laughs> That's the middle eight from the James Bond theme. It's just a little hint of it. But what's interesting about that is that it's played with a plunger. Now, the trumpet with a plunger is something that we've heard many, many times over the years. So I've dug out a few examples of of iconically Bond trumpet and plunger sounds. So here's a few examples. So there we go, Jason. I mean, that's that, that is definitely a very much a Bond sound, isn't it? It sure is. Yes. I mean, it came about from the Goldfinger theme when John Barry was working on the Goldfinger theme, and and it weren't quite getting the sound of that opening salvo that he wanted, and it was actually Derek Watkins, the mm-hmm. lead trumpet player, who played on most of the Bond scores up to now, up to Skyfall, um, until yeah. Skyfall, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was the one that came up with the idea and said, well, what about doing it with the plunger? And, and that became something that John Barry in particular and David Arnold as well used a lot. So does it work? In this particular context? Mm. Well, I think it's kind of similar to the, uh, 
to the guitar thing. It, it seems yeah. like it's a it's certainly associated with Bond, but this is also a series that has come up with ideas that continue the excitement and and sort of Bond flavor without having to go down that road necessarily. So I don't know. I guess mm. it's a matter of opinion. I guess this one's grown on me a lot more than the chord. I, I, initially, yeah. I I felt about it maybe not as strongly as a chord, but like very close behind and as i've listened to the song multiple times i think it's subtle enough that it's okay well there you go but it but it, but again it definitely feels tacked on it doesn't feel like it was they had it in mind when they wrote it start with it feels like oh yeah let's let's put that in there to make it a bit more bond but it it doesn't jar as much as the end for me anyway. I've I've kind of made my piece of it now. I think I've listened to it that many times that I'm used to it and I don't mind it. But those two things, those two bond, and I'm using inverted commas, I'm putting my fingers in the air here, the, the bond elements that they've tried to introduce there for me i think is i think creatively was a mistake that's that's my opinion i think they could have done something a bit more subtly with it yeah i guess you could uh, that that's a pretty solid thing to say i mean like i say it doesn't take anything away from the quality of the song but it it does seem to me to be consistent with everything else is that you know people are saying we wanted to do something that wasn't copying things from the past and then you're hearing something that is obviously reminiscent of things you've heard before that seems to be the overarching kind of a feel of this song to me that's the effect the song has on me yeah which is completely different than uh the song with the fine lyric and and performance that it has because it also has that it's not a yes. bad song by any stretch of the imagination it's just not a surprising song yeah very true very true that's well, something let's... that james bond series did is surprise you yeah all right well let's talk a little bit about the production then and I, before we get into the production of the song Let's have a little listen to Billy and, in, and Phineas breaking down the composition of Bad Guy, which is obviously another one of their big hits. I wanted to put this in because I find it absolutely fascinating and a real insight into their composing techniques and, and how they went around producing that song. And it gives probably gives us a good idea of how their approach might have been into No Time to Die. One of the things that gives things a lot of character is when people are sort of discovering things. So Billy had basically just gotten logic and was just figuring it out for the first time and made this thing. And the funniest thing about this is that I had my studio in my bedroom in our parents' house and Billy had her like studio set up in her bedroom in our parents' house. And she had her base, her subwoofer, on a shelf. So she'd play stuff and the whole thing would like rattle <laughs> chaotically. It was all clipping coming out and that was what sounded cool about it. <laughs> so when she bounced it out and you put you know, overload protection it on it. It didn't sound as It actually out sounds it was... like this. This is what she sent me. The issue is that you want to translate stuff to, like, if it's chaotic in a room, it's also chaotic with headphones on. And so I layered one EQ band, one compressor. We wanted to sound as distorted Another as EQ band. Anywhere. Another series of compressors and another EQ band. And then it sounded like this. Billy also had imported this really cool hi-hat pattern. When I got that pattern, like, down, I was so pumped. I like when you get mad. I guess I'm pretty glad that you're alone. We added a couple other weird things. Billy laughed at something I said.
had that, and then it kind of sat around for like a almost year. a year. So the primary production of the song is really simple. The kick and the bass are two parts. And then the kick is three layers of kick. You know, the actual reason we left the humming in the beginning was because the way that the bass sounds, you could think it's in a different key. Mm. And every time we would do it, I would hum along like da 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 da. And then Phineas always would take it out, and I would be like, no, 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 it should be there. Oftentimes, Billy would go, like, no, 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 leave that in. And I go, like, if we're going to put that in, let's actually work on it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so this humming, even though it sounds very lazy, we tracked knowing it was going to be the humming in it. And it's... And then, just because it's funny to me, the start of the album was this Invisalign thing, and it's, it's part of the session. It's all right in the intro of this song. My Invisalign has... I have taken out my Invisalign. I have taken out my Invisalign, out my Invisalign and this is the album. <laughs> <laughs> and we knew that this would be the first song on the album, and we initially just put it in the start of the song, and then Billy had the very smart idea of not having it be at the beginning of the yeah. song, so that I just felt like people didn't have to listen to that every no time. No one would listen to it if that was at the beginning. All right, let's get to the potatoes and meat, which is the, the stacked harmonies. Do you mm. want to talk about that, Billy? Oh, my God. These <laughs> took so long. Not even recording them, but deciding what it was going to be. I can always, like, figure out a harmony. And Phineas is pretty much the same. It's because we spent so much time in a choir. But basically, I had all these different harmonies for this. And I'm telling you, dude, we tried so many different ways. We tried it being, like, white shirt as just that note. White shirt, now red, my... And then the other harmony bloody nose sleeping and then on creeping it was going to be like three more and then it was gonna, we had like 800 different versions it was like oh my god yeah. it took so long to get and also right. like exact doubles are really hard to record because one of the r stupid rules we've given ourselves is we don't use any pitch correction unless it's like Ever. unless it's like a song with auto tune as an art form it's, there's no which we've correction. done by the way one of yeah and everybody hated it so we're not doing it again we learned our <laughs> lesson white shirt now, where'd my blood? Listen to that D. You hear that pitch? Are you Why kidding me? Sure. Now, where'd my blood? You know I'm sleeping. You're on your tippy toes creeping. Oh, Bro, wait, like pause it. No. What's crazy is how no one knows about, like... Rolling Stone post video of Billy and Phineas bragging about how dope they <laughs> no, are. No, but we work really hard on this shit. So hard. Like, do you hear how exact every single letter is like white shirt this is also after like a, a day of her beating herself up over it yeah I'm like very, listening to it going like I didn't sing the word white right it's not the right it's not the right way oh my god I sang white so many fucking times <laughs> and the breaths are all exactly the same so shocked and happy that people like it the way that it is because the thing we were most worried about was the no chorus hook. and having it have no hook. We didn't think of, so you're a tough guy, like it. We did not think of that as the hook. We Sounds like the pre. It's supposed to be the pre-chorus. 
and then I'm the bad guy, and then we just did this like da da ba da da, da and we we were really worried that yeah. nobody was gonna. If you're going to pop right pop song writing school. That's the point where you're like, yeah, and then yeah, you, you like do, go like, into a whole thing. Some annoying loud. <laughs> so the synth, <laughs> done that, the synth that everybody not. sings along to is. You know what it literally is? It's not at all the same melodies. But it's literally Plants vs. Zombies. And Wizards of Waverly Place. And Wizards Place. of Waverly Place. Well, you know everything's gonna be a breeze. At the end, we'll no doubt justify the means. Yes, please. The other thing that I think is That's super, super day. fun and worth noting in this, we have been to Australia a couple times on tour. And in Australia... Oh, I love this part! I Aust did this part. She did. My mom and I went for a walk in... Sydney. Sydney. We were, like, across the street from the hotel, and... The crosswalk is this little, like, you you press it and it, it's like, doop, doop. And I was like, that's hard. That. That's the sound that it makes when you have to wait. We called that file grart. That's what it was. <laughs> I was looking through my voice memos and I saw something that said grart. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Okay, so here's my voice memos. I just looked up grart, February 5th. And this is what I recorded. And then I was not prepared for this part. That scared me. <laughs> so the issue is, if you play that unaltered, it's not the right speed. So that unaltered would sound like this. Oh yeah. Uneven so and shit. I basically like put it into a quantized bar section and then put samples on it so it was wider and then it became. The hilarious part about all this is we just were in Australia in May and my dad goes, you heard these crosswalks? And I was like, yeah, it's the, the chorus. chorus and bad I had guy. A bad guy. And he goes, what? And I was like, yeah, we, never mind, man. I'm only good at being bad. Phineas always um, makes me do these like Ending of the song, descant part, and it's the most annoying shit ever. And, and then, it always ends up being good, but it's really annoying. Like, I'm like, we're done, I did all the vocals, yes! I'm and like, wait a minute, like, do this entirely Do this, thing. can you take this one and, like, oh. I'm the bad guy. Duh. People are gonna Here's the duh. want to hear that duh is like, a, like, this is why I did it, and this is what it means. It's fucking, I just thought it was fucking Duh. Annoying. You want to know how many takes of duh you did? Hmm. 34. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> duh. That sounded like shit. That was horrible. Duh. Ooh, that's how hot. How do I even do it? That's hot. I like that one hard. Duh. 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 Keep them coming. It's like the song is so not, like it should not be taken seriously. So I had to add a little stupiosity. Yeah, you... <laughs> Stupidity. There's literally a video that I found. We had just made this beat. I think we had white shirt, red my bloody nose sleeping, and that was kind of it. And my mom comes in filming, and me and Phineas were like, "Oh, why are you filming?" And she comes in. And Phineas goes, "Think you're inel." He literally goes inel, basically. <laughs> so then I guess halfway through, he kind of realized he was Have trying you. to say like criminal or 
animal or something. And I went, oh, what if it's think like think you're so criminal, like you're talking to someone, like the whole song is talking to someone that thinks they're this big tough guy. Like, And then I basically was like, oh, Phineas, here's an idea that I swear to God, I thought he was gonna say no to. I go. I say no to everything. I go, you know that song I made that was like, I'm a bad guy. What if we made this song that song? Like, what if we just turned this into that song? And the whole song was about, like, I'm the bad guy. Because I'd been inspired by um, the song called Never by Jid and the song called Stuck in the Mud by Isaiah Rashad that kind of stop for, like, five seconds in the middle and then start this kind of new song that's, like, shorter. And I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, the song was, like, one of the most fun songs to make, make ever. And, um, Usually songs suck to make. I like our music. <laughs> <laughs> I really do, and we work so hard on it. We work really hard on our, this shit, and sometimes it's the most miserable shit ever. Remember I had a thing, I was like, let's finish the album by the time I get my Invisalign off. Remember that? Well, we did this, like, at that, we're like, this album will be done in two and a half weeks. <laughs> yeah, it took so long. It took us, like, a year and a half. It took so long. So, I mean, I, what I love about that is it's, it's always great to get an insight into how these things are created. And, and there's no doubt about it. These guys are incredibly talented writers and producers of music. And, and the, the level of detail that they go to, even the, the, the production of the syllables in the words and the harmonies that they're creating um, and the, the clever use that they have for the actual production of the song, the, the, the samples that they're using... They're obviously very talented writers and producers. Absolutely fantastic. Yes. But what about the production of this song then? How do you feel that... What, what are your opinions about the actual production of, of No Time To Die that's a song? I think it's... Um, as you said, the elements of the uh, orchestration in some of the guitar that do seem like they were clearly added later, aside, the song really does seem to be nice and sensitively built around her vocal mm. uh, right yeah. from the beginning. All of those bits that do seem like they were added later, if you remove those and just look at what's there, you know, the sound of the piano and the sort of lightness but intensity of, of her vocal and everything is all very supportive. I think. I think it worked. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's it's Broadway, like they went into a big studio in New York where they'd cut the soundtrack to, you know, hairspray and just laid it down. It doesn't sound like that. It's clearly like the piano's treated and and the, the sound of the sort of reverbs and everything around her voice and everything are very sensitive. I mean, it's an interesting production. The, the piano sounds very muffled at the start almost like it's being recorded from the room next door with a lid down and it's yeah, yeah. it's it's a different way of recording the piano and and I, do you know what with the especially with the 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 sound effects that come in in around about 17 seconds which is some sort of synth that to me sounds very kind of Hans Zimmer oh you think yeah to me. yeah i think so i think that effect there is something that is the sort of thing that you would hear in a Hans Zimmer moody atmospheric kind of score do you think i hadn't occurred to me to be honest mr ringham but yes maybe it is i think that's probably something that he's brought to the party but i kind of feel that some of what has been put into this song like that has probably been put there to then be taken out and used in the score which is great we haven't had enough 
of inter integration between the song and the score. No, I completely and agree that it's such a simple and yet effective thing when you have a situation like we had up until... Uh, well, I don't know, 1989, Christina, perhaps. Christina Rao. Yeah. Christina Rao. Christina Rao. Yeah, where somebody was responsible for a song, putting the song in the film, then gave them the latitude to incorporate the themes and sound throughout the film, whether it was uh, the incredible run that John Barry did, or George Martin, or Bill Conti, or Marvin Hamlish, or David Arnold. Yeah, there was always a certain amount of ability to do that. And when it's done in... The logistical way that allows a composer to do that, it produces such a satisfying thing that me, that I personally don't get to hear when the song is something that you never hear again, or you hear for 10 seconds in the middle of, a, of the film or something because it was done by different artists at different times and everything else. Some people don't care about that one way or the other, and that's fine because, you know, I'm a bit of a nut for scores. But, uh, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a bit crazy about scores. So I hope we hear that in this. Yeah. Well, I think in a second, let's, we can talk a little bit about what's, what, what you would mind as a composer from that song. But uh, before we do, I just also wanted to talk a bit about the vocal harmonies because I I've, was aware of Billie Eilish before she was announced. I'd heard a couple of the songs. Actually, it's not true. I wasn't aware of Billie Eilish, but I was aware of a couple of her songs. Then when she was announced, I then went and did some deep listening into other songs and one of the things that i noticed with a lot of her songs is the incredible layered vocal harmonies that that they put onto her tracks and i i'll play a couple of examples of ones that i really really like here from her other stuff So, you know, they, they obviously understand harmony and they understand um, how to harmonize a vocal line and uh, and to to a really intelligent, musically intelligent level. You know, it's not just simply adding a third, adding adding one line on top. Where a lot of pop songs, its harmonies are generally quite simple. Their songs are actually quite complex backing vocals and harmonies. But on No Time to Die, they do kind of go quite simple. And I think it... I think it um, complements the song well. And backing vocals is something that we don't really get in Bond songs. But what do you think about the little line where they where they do harmonise? Was I stupid to love you? Was I reckless to help? Was it obvious to everybody else? There's that that bit there where they go into thirds. What what do you think of the harmonies there? Yeah, I think they're great. <laughs> I mean, seriously, okay. you know, uh, that, see, that's the thing too with music is that you've got something like the overall effect of a piece of music and that is sometimes different than how you break something down so you can look at a song and say this there, there are two different songs uh this one has a lot going on 
This one has hardly anything going on, but something about this, the the emotion behind it, how it's delivered, uh, is just is just it just gets me, and I think it's great. So I I think that works on that level for sure. Yeah, I I do love that that little bit where it goes into harmony. I, th- I think works works really really well. But okay, what about then as a composer? What do, what do you think, and what do I think that we're going to get from this song that could be used in the score? Where, what would you use? What would you take? How would you use it? Well, I mean, there is a melody. You know, there is a melody that you can hear, as reminiscent as it is of other ones in parts. It's still its own thing, and uh, and there is, as you said, the uh, the three chords. There is the bass line suggested by the three chords. So uh, all of these things can be weaved into the score. It just depends on. Sometimes you also have uh, an idea of a song being turned into something like a motif. So uh, would you take this and use it to represent? themes like narrative themes of loss and betrayal and other things in the film perhaps you would because that seems to be what the song is talking about right so you could do that or you could use it as pure music and you can just say well this is going to be in the background this is going to be part of the landscape music sort of as you hear in movies like uh you only live twice or something where yeah the theme just becomes the exoticness of going around the world doesn't matter where you are in this case they're going to japan and we just kind of hear it as the background that lets you if your eyes were closed you'd hear it and go oh it's you only live twice i'm watching maybe it'll turn Mm. into that you know there there are different ways to do it i think i think there's a couple of things that zimmer will do in the kind of sort of more desolate scenes where bond is staring out onto the into the sea like you see him in the trailer Mm. i think i think in those kind of scenes we'll get we'll get that kind of where where the piano has that kind of ding at the top of the line where you get the bam 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 that that sort of top note has a kind of echoey effect on it and i think we'll get those effects kind of played at certain points where you'll just get a repetitive like ding 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 maybe slower maybe just with a really kind of uh, still underscoring that will build kind of tension So another thing that I feel that there's this kind of emotional part of the song in the middle where you get the instrumental with the da 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 dee. I think that's a theme that's going to be building through the film um, uh, for the kind of the, the the playoff between Bond and his his love of Madeline and the, obviously the tension, whatever it is that's going on there. I think that's going to be something that's going to keep returning throughout the film. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see used as the emotional kind of theme. I, I don't know. That's just my opinion. I, I feel there's something there that could be used. While we're on the subject, then, what are your what are your feelings about this school? How do you, how do you think it's going to go down? What do you think we're going to get? Are you a fan of Zimmer? 
etc., etc. Well, I know what I think, but I'm also very careful. You know, we were talking earlier about how serious people get with their opinions on the internet and stuff. And yeah. I think a lot of this psychologically is that uh, people are afraid of the unknown, aren't they? Mm. You know, I had a friend who used to go and try to find out absolutely everything he could find out about a film before we'd go see it. Wow, that's because, the and, fun for me. Well, that's the thing. And so I go on, like, moratoriums where I see the trailers to films I want to see once, and then I don't watch them again because I want to kind of get the experience and potentially be surprised and, you know... And and some people don't. They want to do everything. And that's why you get, you know, No Time to Die, the original trailer, dissected to within an inch of its life as to all the things that it could mean and things like that. So... Mm. I think people are sometimes afraid of the unknown. And that's why when sometimes an artist is announced to do something, people weigh in instantly and like, this is going to be terrible and I'll tell you why. It's like, well, because you're afraid of the unknown. So when it comes to the score, you know, I'm trying to, I know what I think, but I don't know what's going to happen, right? Could, could any number of directions and effects and powerful uh, musical things could happen. So you just kind of have to, you have to, put that on hold don't you as difficult as it is as much as it'd be easy to say i'll tell you what's gonna i'll tell you exactly what it's gonna sound like you know well i i agree uh totally but all that said <laughs> you are you are the experienced composer and i think i would be interested and i think people listening would be interested to think what what do you think then so i okay whatever you think I and I'm the same, except that I'm going to go in with an open mind and in try and enjoy it for what it is with the context of the film. But what do you think will happen, and what do you? What's your opinion? Well, I don't know. I guess you could say that uh, Mr. Zimmer has done a lot of films that are in series that have music that have also been composed by other people as well. Like, he's done a Mission Impossible yes. film, he's yep. done a film in the Spider-Man franchise, he's worked with Superman, you know. And so, um, he is not as notable or noted for thematic development and use of those kind of motifs as other composers have thus far done in the James Bond series. Mm. I personally can't get enough motivic development. I don't want it to sound like Wagner, but, you know, the idea that the theme is going through and there are the recurring themes that uh, appear in different guises and kind of support the film. I'm a huge fan of that, and that's why I love, you know, the first 25 years or whatever of, of James Bond scores when I was growing up because it was this unbroken uh, example, set of example series of different ways that you could do this, and I love that. He's not known for doing that, but it the series is known for using that. So perhaps this is going to be something uh, that uh, we hear more of. There is definitely a theme. We've just been talking about it for the last however many minutes. So uh, mm. you know, we'll see if that happens. I hope it does because I'm a fan of that. Other people, you know, hear his uh, sort of non-theme for Batman compared to Danny Elfman's very strong characteristic motif for Batman, and they love it. Other people, mm. you know, it depends on your opinion of the motif. Thus far, he's not known for someone who does a lot of that, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, the, his earlier career, though, he he did write, he he has written thematic material. He just doesn't do it very often. I mean, there there's there's definitely themes in Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, but he he died more recently. He hasn't 
he hasn't done that, has he? Well, not that I'm aware of, no. And I think we're going to get an atmospheric score. I think we will. I think we will get little hints of themes, and I think we will get little hints of the No Time to Die theme, but I think overall it's going to be very sparse. It's going to be Newman again, but, you know, that possibly a slightly different version, but I think it's going to be that same kind of approach where the music is sort of instantly uh, forgettable as 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 far as thematic material goes, like you say. But it's um, it's the way that... I mean, that's the way that modern composing has gone, though, isn't it? I mean, who is writing thema- big theme- thematic material anymore? John Williams, just about still going. But, I mean, even he and his last couple of Star Wars films, a lot of it has been... And and it serves the the, the films well, but it's been a lot of... Um, Re, I don't want to say rehashing because that sounds derogatory, but it's been reuse, let's say, of themes from the earlier Star Wars films. So, who is writing? Who is writing thematic material out there now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's more of a sense of what the series needs. You know, there's, there's, mm. even though uh, John Williams is using themes that have been established earlier in the series, that is something that supports characters and themes to occur and reoccur. Uh, other film series, you can say probably it's not as important. Does, does the Fast and Furious series need <laughs> a set of, like, every character has their own, you know, light motive that kind of comes back when you see them? It doesn't really matter. But in this case, my opinion is that the James Bond series kind of benefits when you do that. But, uh, you know, it's amazing that you have a dozen, more than two dozen plus different films and each one of them like I said earlier you can watch with your eyes closed because the score mm. tells you that it's this film and not the last one no one just opens up their workstation and goes oh let's just tack on the music from the last film it'll work it'll be fine it's always something different so I think it, it benefits from that but then if if they wanted to go that way they could have had the perfect opportunity when Dan Roma left the project I mean, I just thought when I heard that news, I thought, well, they're surely going to go back to David Arnold now. You know, for me, it was a no brainer. You've got someone that that it's especially with the time pressures and everything else. It's like, okay, we're in trouble. Let's go to what we know. We know it'll work. We know people are like it. We know he can do it. He's well experienced in it. He's a fantastic composer. Why not go back to him? So they've obviously made that decision to take it in a different direction and they want to move away from that thematic material. Well, I assume that's the only thing I can... I have no inside knowledge on this at all. I can only assume. Um, because surely Carrie Fuganaga would have been would have been happy with, with David Arnold if, if it had been thrust upon him because he's he's tried and tested. That's true. Well, these are these are complicated things to put together. I, I, we, we'll, we may never know what uh, what led to this particular set of uh, creatives working together. Yeah. Well, it's exciting times, that's for sure. It'll be very interesting to see how the song is integrated. It'll be very interesting to see what Hans Zimmer does with it. I hope that what we've talked about today, to anyone listening, in doesn't feel like we've we've picked apart the negative points from the song because that's not the intention for sure is it jason no no of course not no no but I I do, sorry go ahead. i do think it's you know, i do think it's important that we're going to give our opinion on it and i think certainly where we sit that you're kind of not such a fan of it as a bond song um and and i'm probably a bit similar to that but i've grown it's grown on me 
uh, and I, but I love it as a song. So you know, we've there's definitely lots of positives that we're seeing in it, and but there are a few things that I think maybe we would have liked to have seen differently. But I think it'll be interesting when we come back next time and talk about um, music from Bond films. Presumably, we're going to start somewhere near the beginning, and it's going to be an awful lot of positives because both of us are huge John Barry fans, and it's going to be great fun getting under the hood with those things isn't it it sure is and uh there's going to be a lot to say there is there really is well i hope you've enjoyed our first podcast um it's been a bit thrown together we're going to have some fun when we come back because as i discussed with jason when we we're talking about how we're going to sort of run this said we need a theme tune and i said and what a what a better idea we've got a composer and we've got someone who runs a a band we're a really well i think a, a decent band i said why don't you why don't you uh compose the song and we'll perform it so so hopefully next time we do an actual um analysis podcast we'll have a theme tune written by jason and performed by key the music for you that'll be fun won't it it sure will and if it's not done in time you and i'll just have to sing it or something <laughs> they don't want that believe you me <laughs> no, they no. don't want that all right, Jason. Well, look, thanks ever so much. It's been great fun. And um, don't forget to come and follow us on Facebook and uh, subscribe to the podcast and do all those sorts of things. And you'll get some more from us when we come back. Bye for now. Bye bye.